UPS smashes their earnings guidance. Norfolk Southern is leading intermodal in the east, but there's a huge transportation sell-off on Werner's beat because people think that we've reached peak market. I'm JP. And I'm Zach, filling in for Chad. And it's earnings season once again on What the Truck. So here we are in the Grumpy Pete, um, our chief analytics officer, Dean Croak's 2003 customized Peterbilt. Dean, welcome to the uh, What the Truck, and thanks for welcoming us into uh, the Grumpy Pete. Thanks, JP. So tell us a little bit about this um, beautiful machine you have here. Yeah, this was a 35-year dream in the making. Uh, when I first moved here 20 years ago, I always wanted to have a, a long-hooded Peterbilt, and uh, I found this X Werner Enterprises truck um, about 10 years ago. It had a little bit of custom work done to it, so I, I purchased it and began uh, customizing it myself. Uh, I did most of the work on the outside myself, but on the inside I took it to Four States Trucks, which are the uh, also known as the Chrome Shop Mafia, who were the guys on the Trick My Truck show. And they, they took out the interior and put in what I wanted, which was twin sticks, a 359 dash. We took out the bunk beds and put in a big lounge that you were all sitting on. And we put in two TVs, an Xbox, stereo, 1100 watt surround sound stereo. Pretty much everything an over the road trucker needs, except the hammock. I couldn't fit the hammock in for nice. the, the bed. That was the only thing that I missed. And you said um, you moved to the States. Where did you move from? Uh, moved from Canberra in Australia, which is... Which explains the beer we're drinking yep. today. Uh, and it's Foster's in a green can. In a green can, not the blue can. And there's a little story behind that because uh, Foster's is a one of the longest beer brands in Australia, one of the oldest. And, Trying to open uh, this can. <laughs> yeah, this is a one pint can. There we and, go. Uh, most Americans are familiar with the blue Foster's Lager, mm-hmm. which is not very popular in Australia. Uh, the most popular beer in Australia is the uh, Vic Victoria Bitter that comes in a green can, but it's been repurposed for the American market into a Foster's uh, green can. Yeah. Right. So you guys basically export the shit that you don't want to drink yeah. and make us drink yeah. it and keep <laughs> all the good stuff for yourselves. But we, we're getting a little taste of it today. It's, yeah. it's pretty good. And Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind I'm of down. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice beer, especially in a cold glass. It's, oh, a, man. it's actually a nice ale. Well, it's a warm day, too. So yeah. yeah. Cool. Great. And so mm-hmm. one of, um, you worked for companies like Omnitrax and some risk management firms in the U.S. doing data analytics. Mm-hmm looking at sleep, accidents, um, you know, driver scheduling, things like that. But tell us a little bit, um, you also drove, what, 2 million miles Correct. through the Australian outback? Right, Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. I, I grew up in, in a small family livestock haulage business. I started driving on the road when I was nine. Uh, my dad had sleep and, and I'd start driving. And, and when you... When you drive at night, no one really knows who's driving a truck in the middle of the night when you look up. So, so you uh, just started driving at the age of nine? Yeah, I did a, I did a lot of driving before I had a license. And, uh, and that we, wasn't legal, right? Of course not. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but I, I, you know, my father taught me how to drive, so I actually turned out to be a half-decent driver. And um, I just love trucks, love being around trucks. So, uh, But our dad sold our business so my brother and I could get an education. He didn't want us to become truck drivers, but as soon as we finished <laughs> college, we went straight back into trucking. Hell. We bought trucks, and uh, I ended up doing about two million miles and, and uh, owned some trucks, managed large trucking fleets, ran some large logistics contracts like Case New Holland Farm Machinery and 
distributed those all over Australia and then moved here in the late 90s. My, the, some of my favorite anecdotes that you have about um, Australia are you know, just the, the remote ranches that you would right, go to, right, yeah. rounding up livestock with helicopters, right, right. Um, yeah. literally pushing water buffalo into your truck with a Jeep. Right, right. It's a pretty remote environment. 80% of the population lives in 3% of the landmass. So in Australia, when you talk about the outback, it's like it's like a, the, an area that's equivalent to two-thirds of the United States. And there's no roads and there's no infrastructure. So everything is diesel power generation. So all of the outback indigenous communities and all of the mines, because it's such a large commodity-based economy, all of those mines have to run off diesel generation. And of course, all those supplies have to get into the areas by large multi-trailer road trains like like road trains I had, which was a 98-wheel, four-trailer uh, uh, tanker that would haul... 98 uh, wheels? Yeah. We'd that, that. Is, yeah <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. You cross about 200 tonnes, close to 500,000 pounds. Um, and, well, and that's, that, that's like on a whole nother level. Yeah. And, and the difference is that because you're in the middle of nowhere, you have to change your own tyres, and you might change three or four tyres a day. So it's, you're more than just a driver. You're a mechanic, you're a tyre changer, you look after livestock, you're a driver... And it's and it's extremely remote. And sometimes a kangaroo fighter. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> when you get bored yeah, and you have a few too many fosters. Nice. <laughs> Kangaroos are pretty good sparring partners. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, you know inviting us in, and uh, this is so cool. It just adds to the ambiance of the recording. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna move in. Right. This is okay. nice. You got like an Xbox and a sound system better than my house. Is so it all happening. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, why don't we get into some of these um, earnings, Zach? And maybe before we dive into like individual company reports, maybe we can just talk about uh, the piece that Kinks, John Kingston, our executive editor, wrote about just the general kind of worries in the equities markets about, you know, like it, it was so weird, right? Warner Enterprises beat their guidance. They beat Wall Street's consensus. Um and, and then all the stocks just started tumbling. And it, what, what happened to stock prices? Well, they went they went all over the place. Some of them went up, some of them went down. Yeah, so it's, I mean, well, it, it, there's, yeah. no, there's right. no semblance to it. I mean, that's, that's not unusual in the stock market. I mean, a lot of the things you have to think about in the stock market is not, it, it, good news and bad news can have polarizing effects either way because a lot of the times the, uh, the market already knows exactly what that earnings call is going to go like. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's, I mean, there's certain stocks like UPS, for instance, they blew up. That obviously was a surprise to the market. Um, Night Swift has been declining like, like steadily since like, even though the they posted the lowest operating ratio we've ever seen. I've, from I've, a, a I've, truckload carrier. I've never heard of a sub 80, like asset based carrier, like OR, right. like that's, that's insane. 77.7 OR was the figure for night trucking. And I think, yet, you know, I mean, you wonder about how lopsided their business is, where, where they're where they're kind of, you know, stacking their their profitable freight versus the, their crappy freight when the logistics operation was like what a ninety four point six OR, which you know yeah. in theory could probably should it be better than that. Right. No, but I, still, I mean, I mean it's very impressive. How how do well, they how do they do that? It seems like no one else can achieve that. 
I, you know that I, I guess we were we were discussing this earlier in the in the model for the night version of, of the business the night side of the business which they do operate kind of independently of each other still um, is is more super regional and and what that is is basically they they, they only operate within 200 300 miles and they keep their network discipline really tight so they're not subject when you keep your trucks in a certain uh, small geographic region uh, what that does is it, it allows you to kind of you know you, your drivers are happy you're able to manage your your specific network a lot more cleanly uh, you don't lose a lot of there's not a lot of wasted mileage their their deadhead percentage I think is one of the lowest in, in the industry makes sense um, so when you when you keep it that tight and you're a truckload carrier I mean that's really hard to do because what happens is in comes the uh, the sales rep and says hey guys I got this super awesome contract. It's going to add another like hundred million dollars of revenue to us per year. And normally the sales guy uh, gets talking to the executives and they're like, you know, it's a great idea. We should totally do that. And the ops people are sitting over there like, no, 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 please, no, God, yeah, no. Yeah. Like, we don't want to do yeah. irregular over the road. Like that's what we suck at. Yeah. Because they, they have to change their entire like management style to do that. And it's also like network inefficiencies just blow up once you hit like 500, 600 miles. I mean, you're, you're exposed to, you know, a, so many more contingencies, so yeah. many more, you know, think problems with the shipper, the customer can throw off a whole day, mm -hmm. cause you to waste a lot of time. So they say no to those deals. Yeah. Like they're turning down, you know, top line revenue all the time. Because they're exactly. focused on the bottom line. It, well, well it, it's it's smart in an industry like trucking to really, I mean, you know, you, you don't want to be too locked into what you're doing. But at the same time, it, it for an industry that's got super thin margins, I mean, obviously it's working. But a 930R is considered great success in trucking. And so when you can control your costs consistently and, like, lower your exposure to market volatility, which there's tons of. Right. Uh, especially right now. Um, you, you. So how, what, what is their, like, contract spot mix? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I know that um, they do very little dedicated. Swift is a lot more dedicated. Swift, I think, is about a 50% dedicated, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, right. They're about 50%, somewhere in there, um, which is pretty strong considering that's what most drivers want uh, right. so that allows them to do that but i think they they also operate a lot of over the road like a lot further out like they're more of a what you would essentially uh, imagine with an over the road carrier um they, they have their dedicated line they got their over the road line and they got their kind of regional guys and they, they all kind of mix together um, right right um interesting okay what about so so you know Nye was able to post these incredible numbers, you know Swift, you know it's still um, hard I think to kind of really bring Knight's culture in and really change the way they work. They're they've long kind of been considered the industry's like academy fleet in a way, right. and I think they're kind of notorious for you know sending you know a new driver down a road he's never been before and just kind of right. seeing what happens no um, no that's a that's a strong point the uh the swift and knight are actually uh, I mean, kind of opposites yeah they're 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 like the odd couple they uh it's like the it's like this this one side of of operating that's very kind of like the owner's very engaged he's he's talking to his people he's like that old those old southwest commercials do you remember those where the 
the CEO, I forget his name now, uh, the CEO of Southwest was literally on commercials talking to like flight attendants and everything. Yeah. That's supposedly what Kevin Knight's what like. Kevin Knight's like. And and then you got Swift, who's like more of the traditional like corporate, like he, he reads all the, the leadership books and like kind of has these structures. You know, he probably went to a Kaizen class. <laughs> You know, uh, the Toyota production, but then when you get down to the trenches, they're just have like, just like sort of incredible rays of churn. Yeah, you know, no, in I mean, fleet, it's in the fleet itself. It, it, it's kind of like it happens in every industry. It's not, it's not isolated to trucking. I mean, you have these cultures that are essentially, you know, you, you, I'm going to give you the structure and the layout and it's a great way to learn. Like that's why everybody kind of goes there first because they're going to give you here's if everything were in a in a vacuum like right. here's how you can operate and do it efficiently and well as long as everybody's on the same page but eventually like you kind of grow out of that you, I mean most employees are kind of like and truck drivers specifically yeah that does not mesh well with their like kind of personality and their persona like yeah. truck drivers especially over the road ones are, are kind of free will and independence. I don't want you to tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> you know, that kind right. of thing. I mean, Dean could chime in here. Is that... Yeah, so the, one of the things that drivers uh, fear the most or hate the most is inconsistency. So when you start to have a network like Knight have got, for example, and you start to build in consistency into that lane density, what it means is drivers can plan their lives around that consistency. And what it does is it increases efficiencies around how vehicles are operated, the miles they do, the deadhead of miles, as you spoke to, also lowers turnover and aids in retention. So there's right. a lot more softer benefits that come out of that business model compared to an over-the-road model where you've got 35 full-service terminals that act like mini truck stops and you've got drivers hitting them at a sort of infrequent basis. Right. It's a very different business model. Yeah, no, is there, is there not, like, I almost envision some some of the, the population of truck drivers as kind of like this freewheeling cowboy that just right. wants to, like, shoot over the road yeah. Yeah. and just give me a destination and I'll get there. Type There's deal. some like that. Like, you see some guys in truck stops like that Hall for Mercer or or the big uh, furniture removal companies where they have 122-inch sleepers and they're like, they're 70-square-foot sleepers. They're like little mini motorhomes. They live in their own trucks. So their whole I've actually life seen is, some of those yeah. on the road yeah. recently. Yeah. Right. Whereas most of the guys are, you know, probably do have a need to get home as frequent as they can. And the typical model is for every seven days out, you get one day home. And, and for a lot of guys that start new in the business, that, that home time may not be for three or four weeks mm. to get your wow. three days at home. And you can't, you can't plan a life around that. Right. Especially when you start off new in the industry, you might be on a minimum guarantee of three or $400 a week. Even though you're running team miles with a trainer, the cash flow crunch yeah, yeah. hits you really hard at home right. yeah. and you're not there to deal with it. It's a really right. stressful existence. Mm. Sounds rough. Uh, so why don't we just talk, uh, I just wanted to read a couple of like th interesting kind of things um, about why the equities markets are so fickle with transportation and logistics right now. Um, we talked a little bit about when we were at um, McLeod earlier mm -hmm. this week, talking a little bit about macroeconomic stuff. You know, Bob Costello, the chief uh, economist for the ATA, was sort of saying that we're in the second longest economic recovery, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> um, I just wanted to read this, this um, quote from Ahmed Marotra the uh, Deutsche Bank analyst okay. um, who was saying he, he was explaining kind of this like weird volatility and he said uh, to be fair TL truckload cycles are notoriously short and fickle making today's move explainable to some degree in fact year-to-date move from most I think actually transportation and logistics yeah, right. stocks 
look reasonable in light of peak cycle concerns, except for Night Swift, where the stock's 20% decline leaves us searching for answers. It's so interesting. Like how <laughs> how do you get how do you run as tight a ship as as basically as possible in this industry and just get hammered on the stock market? You know, I think, I think I think I think they'll bounce back once people realize that I think they, that if this if this economy still has legs, like I, like I yeah like like I said before, the, the stock market is is kind of separated itself from the, the like what what it used to be like it used to be kind of this leading indicator of of activity like you used to be able to kind of glean what's going to happen in the future of the economy from the stock market uh that no longer happens anymore the whole dynamic of of stock market trading has has changed a lot of algorithmic uh models in there it's very algorithmic models so that it produces wider swings as you know if 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 um a large player starts dumping a stock mm-hmm. it'll trigger stop losses on a bunch of different algorithms at all of the different funds everybody gets out of it also i think one of the other things that's kind of decoupled it from you know the actual economy is the rise of all these etfs and passive exactly. funds where it's like yeah. people like me you know are dumping you know our you know money like every you know every month or whatever into these index funds and, and you know that's no you're right the, the money's going somewhere it's going into some stock i don't even know which one and it's just gradually inflating everything no the day the year and it has nothing to do with the performance of any individual industry yeah, or no, stock. The, the day of the day trader has has long passed uh that is that is now like etfs and indexes are the way that like people like you and me and and everybody else kind of invests now. They they don't have like oh I'm gonna go in and, and buy night. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm, <laughs> gonna I'm gonna try to you know um, out research mm-hmm. the hedge fund and pick a stock before before you know the secret that I'm discovering is priced in already. Yeah, like that just doesn't really. Yeah, no, happen. there's no such thing as as this like you know insider trading deal anymore. You don't. How many people since Martha Stewart have you heard about getting busted at the SEC for insider trading? Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> yeah. yeah that's. I mean it still happens. I'm just saying. Well, like that's that's uh, actually you know we were talking to um, a uh, investment banker who will not be named <laughs> yesterday, and he was actually explained this whole information asymmetry, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. He used to be on the research equities side of the investment bank, um, reporting on transportation stocks, um, you know, and really providing a value for retail investors. But um, they kind of got regulated out of existence because what happened was the government was, they used to be able to sell trading tips to hedge funds, the research people did. That, that, but then financial regulations created a firewall between the sort of investment side and the research side. And so the research side was no longer able to generate the revenue needed to support its activities. All of the research budgets of these banks are getting slashed. The The research action is, is going into the hedge funds themselves. They're insourcing it. And now the retail investor doesn't get these reports and only the hedge funds have it. And so it's creating, it's actually creating a kind of an information asymmetry, giant, unintended, giant unintended consequence of right. a consumer protection right. kind of mm-hmm. thing. But it's really um, kind of, you know, you can either do your own research and try to beat, you know, the smartest people in the U.S. By using Google and Wikipedia. And you know, seeking <laughs> alpha or whatever, or free right. waves. Yeah, right. We don't necessarily recommend. Or 
uh, you can just invest in indexes, which is, you know, that's basically, the, and that's what's happened. Is yeah. People have gone to this passive, you know, management model. Exactly. No, they can no longer kind of do their own thing. Like, there's a lot of people that really, you know, I myself was a finance major, and my dad was a stockbroker. And, so. and you don't pick stocks? No. There's, I, I, have, I, I realized real fast that, like, uh, I guess when I was going through finance, like, even my, one of my finance professors told me, like, here's a technical analysis section. Um, throw it away. <laughs> and he said, you will not beat the market uh, unless you live in New York City and know some people that work in companies very high up. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you, you need to go, if you're going to go in and invest in the, in the, you know, the market, you need to go in long term and basically put your money with somebody that has some sort of connection. So, you know, uh, the long and short of it, yeah. <laughs> pun intended, Boom. is that, um, you know, just because Night Swift went down 20% does not mean that the company, is, that some people know bad things about the company mm. or the company's doing poorly or, you know, it's lost 20% of its value proposition. That's not the case. The stock market is, you know, sometimes the, the volatility is very low, like it was right. all of last year. You know, it's just sort of inching up, boom, 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 you know, very steadily. It doesn't reflect the actual economy. Sometimes it's ex- it's more volatile than the actual economy. You know, exactly. It's, it's so... It, it, it's, it's very different. Like, the psychology of the market has changed quite a, quite a bit just because the participants now are different. Right. And uh, I think you see that a lot nowadays, especially, I mean, the freight market itself, I, I think what uh, your analyst there was saying... <clears throat> I think it's funny that everybody kind of expects this, like we've, in transportation, those of us that have been in the industry are kind of used to this kind of swinging pendulum of uh, volatility and, and like basically like, well, capacity's gone this week, but it'll be back next week. And, and we've kind of grown accustomed to this market kind of swinging back into equilibrium really fast. Right. Well, the thing that's changed in the last year and a half, and I think it's kind of lost on a lot of people because everybody's like... I mean, I think even in the general economy, everybody's kind of sitting there going, like, looking for bad news to be like, yeah, oh yeah, we're, we're overdue. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And if you look at the actual like data, like, I mean, the numbers, it's it's kind of like, oh man, every a recession or so every well, seven like, to nine years. Well, you know, and, that's what happens. <laughs> like, right, you you reach you reach the lowest unemployment you can get. Mm-hmm. People still companies are still trying to grow, so they start paying more. Mm-hmm. So that creates inflation. So then the Fed starts raising interest rates. You know, they do their thing and they overcorrect. And then, boom, like, all of a sudden, credit tightens up. Everyone contracts. People will get laid off. Yeah. Then, you know, you have a correction. Yeah, no. I mean, and, I, you know, it doesn't it really boil down to, like, kind of market sentiment? I yeah. mean, like, yeah, basically, that's, like, that's what everybody think. panics. <laughs> so that's... Let's, let's talk about um, Werner a little bit. Okay. So they killed it. Right. Did a great job. And... Boom, like people. This, that's when the sell-off started. Yeah, um, and it's all about just people. Basically, basically, Wall Street was saying, "We think this is as good as it can get." Like this is when you need to, if you if you're holding this company, this is when you need to take your profits. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. I, I I personally like you know looking at our our data. Don't really. I'm not really seeing that. No, no. I mean, that's that's one of the things, you know. I, I mean, kinda... we're, we're, everyone that, like, all the trucking economists that we talk to um, are projecting, you know, capacity tightness, you know, th- into 2019. No, I, I, there's always been this, I think capacity tightness is, is kind of a, 
it's over and it's, over, re it's relative too. yeah and it's overused term obviously and i use it i use it more than i should myself but uh, I, I mean going in everybody's so like conditioned to expect like bad things especially in transportation like you're sitting there and you're and you're enjoying like the most inflated spot market activity that you've ever experienced in your life and you basically are and you trained. remember and you remember two years ago when you were pulling your hair out trying not to go bankrupt yeah exactly no there's there's a lot of companies out there trucking companies specifically that in 2016 were just dying on the vine and then all of a sudden the freight market just flips and they're killing it right i mean rates that elevate uh, what have they gone up i think eight to ten percent in the last uh six to eight months oh yeah easy i mean then, a lot of people are i mean a lot of companies with spot market exposure we're mm -hmm. seeing um first of all we heard you know uh in the spring double digit uh contract rate increases mm -hmm. even on you know and they would say low double digits for our best customers yeah um and spot market you know depending on where you're at could be you know 25 percent higher year oh year. yeah spot market obviously is like significant um but. The contract rates are really like I think this past year we saw like some like ELD and hurricanes and all the uh, you know the some of the black swan events uh, kind of really gave a lot of fuel to the carriers fire when they were elevating those rates and but it, the the thing that I find interesting is that it actually has had staying power this time versus like the two to three week window that they normally get. It's also ex exacerbated by the ELD mandate, right? Yeah. Which has constrained the miles fleets can run because now the main constraint is time. Right. You can only run a certain number of miles in a certain time period. And on top of that, you've got you know a certain percentage of the industry have exited the industry as sort of baby boomers get older and they've resisted this technological change because this is one of the biggest impacts on the industry since deregulation. Like it's yeah. a really significant event that happened last, October, uh, last December. Right. right. So you, you, do you think that most of the impact was felt in December as opposed to April? I think it was before December. I think uh, the surveys I did last year showed that people were already thinking about either exiting the industry, buying pre-2000 trucks, changing their routing and their mode, you know, their, their type of freight <laughs> they hauled so they could be home more often and be less likely to be out of hours in the middle of nowhere. So I think people made that decision before the, the hard mandate came in. Right. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Um, we've seen some data suggesting that people since December, uh, drivers have been adjusting their behavior, right. trying to optimize, you know, to find really the upper limit of what's possible right. under, you know, ELD compliance. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so our, uh, index data in Sonar is telling us that what we're seeing is some drivers are actually... Uh, there's, there's one theory that we're, we're, they're doing more hours. Uh, another theory is that they're actually capturing the actual hours they were doing. So uh, if you look at line three behavior drivers. Oh, like, for example, the the guys who are running hot are yeah. now f finally getting right. on ELDs. Right, right. And they were the ones really, yeah. like, yeah. like running hard. Well, with, with paper logs, you can just draw a line for 11 hours straight in, a, in your logbook and then put 10. Right. And adds up to 24 at the end of the day. The miles you did dis didn't necessarily re reflect the location and time of what the logbook showed. So that whole equation has changed now. And, and I see what drivers are doing. If we look at our sonar index on the, on the 11 and the 14 hours, what we're seeing is drivers are still... Uh, not recording all of their hours on docks because every hour they record on a dock comes off their 60 hours at the end of the week. Right. Because they've only got 60 now to run miles. So now, so now essentially, like with this electronic tagging, like they can no longer kind of like just fudge the the, the book and say right. like, hey, right. 
uh, you know what? I was only there for like five minutes. Right. And it's drop and hook. Now, yeah. yeah now, there's an actual like there's, it's right. tied to your motor, like right. your, your running time. So, but it, are, are they are they it. saying like, uh, oh, I was actually you know off duty. Yeah, they're going straight to off duty or sleeper, mm-hmm. which instead which, of on duty non driving. Yeah, correct. So we're seeing on duty non driving time it stayed flat. Yeah, so when the hard mandate came in, we saw line four data in Sonar's flatline, mm-hmm. in, which everybody thought, oh, well, it'll, it'll increase now because drivers are suddenly recording it. Well, no, that human nature is I need to, if I'm paid by the mile, I've got to preserve every hour I can to run miles. Explain right. what line four data is. Uh, so there's four lines in a logbook. Okay. Uh, line one is off duty, line two is sleeper berth, line three is on duty driving. And line four is on duty not driving, which is fueling, pre-trip, unloading, loading. And there's three hours allowed for that a day. Right. 11, 11 on duty. 14 hour and 11 hour yeah. clock. 11 right. on duty, three other, 10 off. Mm-hmm. 11, three and 10 is 14. Right. right. Yeah. That's how it works. And so that the line four is really where they're trying to preserve. Sc- yeah. yeah, preserve time. But what I noticed on the way down on the trip, I did 1,100 miles on the way down, and I noticed that even though fleets have been constrained by the time, they're actually running faster. Mm. So, oh yeah. So, oh oh. Uh, we've heard that anecdotally yeah, on yeah. Facebook comments too. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. oh everyone's like speeding. Oh. No, they're just... uh, so uh, uh, and I estimate it's about ten to fifteen miles hour uh, over, and I think it's about a hundred miles a day, delta. Wow. Between people that are you know cranking it. And That's a huge that, difference. Than the big company trucks <laughs> yeah. at sixty two. <laughs> yeah, they're hauling. Advantage oh. owner ops. Yeah. Do what you yeah. gotta do. Yeah, right. Um. So why don't we uh, shift modes a little bit and talk about um, Norfolk Southern for a second? All the rails, um, the rails are. Yeah, uh, Kingston. How, how much money do they make this time? <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah, I know it's it's kind of insane. I you know I I read that book about you know the nineteenth century history of the railroads and the transcontinentals and just all the shenanigans their their bond sellers and, right. Lobbyist. Well, they didn't even have lobbyists, actually. They didn't need them. They had U.S. senators <laughs> on their boards. Yeah. So, you know. It they was, owned them. It was, it was, it was a simpler, uh, easier, um, fatter time for the railroads. It, it was, maybe, is, maybe, is it? <laughs> according to uh, the CSX and Norfolk Southern earnings that we've covered, not much has changed. So, um, actually, Norfolk Southern was kind of criticized a little bit on their earnings call. They, rep- they only reported... A quarterly operating ratio of sixty four point six percent. Oh, which was yeah. Poor know, things. That's a bad. That's a bad quarter. Right. Um, it's actually an improvement over uh, you know, sequentially, um, over. And, and and year over year. So they're doing fine. I think <laughs> the you know they're making so Norfolk Southern Eastern Rail. They're making better CSX. Who is able? They were you know they've been the ones who are most notorious for cost cutting. Um, you know, taking capacity off, sweating the assets, as they say, closing down all the hump yards. Um, and so C- CSX got the OR down to 58.6%. Norfolk Southern above that, 64.6%. Ooh. Interestingly, though, I think the other... And, and I think Nor- Norfolk Southern has, has plans to um, sort of control costs a little bit more. One of the things that they they were sort of lagging on that other railroads had already implemented is that um, they hadn't completely centralized all their dispatch. Mm-hmm. And now they're doing that, and all their dispatch is going to be based in Atlanta now. The other interesting thing about Norfolk Southern 
is that they grew their um, intermodal. So, so the, we talk all the time about the different, you know, the play, you know, the sort of intermodal um, play and the interplay and the interaction between truckload and train. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. like this, these intermodal container volumes, if, if there's a lack of capacity in truckload, if the prices get way, way out of whack of what people want to pay and they don't necessarily have time since they're afraid they can throw it on a train. Um, and that seems to happen. So Norfolk Southern has really has their intermodal network like locked down and running smoothly. And they posted a 20% um, growth year over year for the second quarter. So it's kind of like they're collaborating a little bit better, right? They're playing nicer. Is that kind of the, the vibe? I think, well, I, I think here's what I think, dude. So I listened to the CSX call. And people were asking them why their intermodal growth numbers were sucking so bad. Right. And basically, um, Jim Foote, the, you know, the new uh, CEO who you know was replaced the late Hunter Harrison, was kind of saying that they didn't. He he was like, we haven't implemented precision scheduled railroading in intermodal. It we for many many years it was operated as kind of a franchise, completely separate from our other network. It wasn't integrated at all. Um, he even used the word dysfunctional. I think I said wow. it in the last podcast. Like he, like so they. He was like, and so the analysts were asking. They were saying like, what's the timeline for like rationalizing this part of your business? When are you going to get this together and take advantage of this you know somewhat historic opportunity in the intermodal right now? And he, he was basically like, I don't know. He's like, <laughs> he's like, we have a ton of work to do. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> he's like, he's like, we have a ton of work to do. We're going to do it methodically. Um, air quotes around the word methodically. I think I think that, that was kind of like saying like he wasn't going to try to like screw over his customers too badly. But um, <laughs> but he was saying that if it takes a couple extra quarters, it takes a couple extra quarters. Anyway, me- meanwhile, at least in that segment of the business, um, you know, uh, Norfolk Southern's eating their lunch. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's kind of an interesting story there. It's always the. Um, you know, it's it's the Easterns versus the Easterns and the Westerns versus the Westerns. You yeah, can't really. Yeah, I guess you can't. I guess you can't compare them. Like, no, you like and, and and people were saying like, people, I think on the Union Pacific call, were saying like, why can't you be more like CSX and, you know, it was a completely unfair comparison. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not right. I mean, if you're if you're covering one section of the country versus another, like you're you're exposed to a totally different market set, and it's not you can't. It's not apples to apples, essentially. Right. It's not even apples to oranges, which can be compared because they're both fruit. And it is getting hot in here. Yeah, it's getting hot in here. We are <laughs> sitting in the Grumpy Pete in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It is a sauna. We are sweating. Um, but yeah, we're we're, we're we're hanging in. There. But the Foster's Premium Ale. Yeah. Is tasting better and better. We need an IPU, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, I think the only thing we have left to talk about is UPS. Just for a second, um, UPS killed it. They killed it. Stock up, what twenty percent? A huge jump. Um, um, I think everybody's kind of sensitive to UPS because they're tied to Amazon. Yeah, I mean. they. <laughs> I think they kind of, uh, you know, sailed between Scylla and Charybdis. If you're into Greek mythology, oh, look on, at you. On, on their little. Um, uh, labor so labor dispute ribbons. with the Teamsters. They made it out. Uh, not too much uh, pain on the um, pension compensation side for them. And it looks like you know that was just a uh, you know temporary flare up. And they got another five years of certainty uh, f- for their investors on the cost oh, side. God. So 
anyway um that's a wrap and uh thank you dean thank you. Uh, again um zach for filling in for chad and we will catch you next week on what the truck well that does it for today thanks for listening to this week's episode of what the truck Make sure you subscribe to What The Truck on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and rate and review us so that more listeners can find the show. And if you're interested in even more FreightWaves content on the finance and economics of freight, you don't want to miss MarketWaves 18, our conference at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, this November. Visit marketwaves18.com for more information about this event. And a lot of our data discussed in today's episode came from our SaaS platform, Sonar. To find out more about Sonar, uh, go to FreightWaves.com slash Sonar. Well, that'll do it for today, and we'll catch you next time on What the Truck.